This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. The original title of this article was Jesus Restored the Original Purpose of the Law in the New Testament. Um, I actually didn't, that was, that was given by our editor, uh, and I did not notice that title. Actually, even when I posted it, I didn't notice that that was the title that ended up on it. I often am not involved in the titling process. Um, but uh, Rabbi Dr. Lamb, can you help us explain why even that title is already going to set some people off and make them suspicious or at least annoyed? Sure. Um, so it's interesting because. Um, when you read a title like that, there are a couple of different things that it can tell you or that it can, that it can say to you. And depending on which one you're hearing, you'll either hear something, uh, either horrifying or inspiring or just kind of like banal and neutral. Right. And I think it's important to explain what would prompt you to hear each one of those. Hmm. And, and I think how we could, we we could kind of adjudicate this particular usage of the of the of the words in that title. So just to kind of set the stage, um, why would someone find that title troubling? Um, so what you need to what we need to talk about is a really important word, which is boring, inaccessible, and not typically used in any other and not used really in any other context, and that is supersessionism. Right. Um, but we need to unpack what that word means because that one kind of long but but seemingly insignificant word kind of holds the key to really everything that's going on here. Supersessionism uh, is a word that describes the following phenomenon. Um, it's the first century or it's the second century or it's the third century, whenever you kind of date these kind of events. But take sort of the conventional wisdom of how Christianity comes to be. If you're not a scholar of early Christian history or early Judaism and you kind of just know the conventional wisdom, the assumption is sort of Judaism is kind of chugging along. And then you get to the first century, uh, you know, what Jews would call the common era, you know, what you might call the first century AD. Um, so you get to the first century and all of a sudden there's kind of like a break in the music. And when the music starts up again in the first century, all you have, what you then have is Judaism on one side of the dance floor and Christianity on the other side of the dance mm. floor. And Jesus is understood to be that kind of, uh, uh, seminal figure who initiates that break in the music. Because he, what Jesus he is the does, record scratch in this analogy. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you might be wondering how I got here. Right. <laughs> so, so Jesus is the guy who kind of like stops the Judaism train, gets off and starts the Christianity train. And it's a new religion. If the premise of Christianity is that, emer is that it emerges from Judaism, then you need to somehow explain that emergence. Why would why would the if 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 it's the same God who is presiding over Judaism and Christianity, why would you need a part two? Um, right? Why would you need a sequel if the if the first movie was great? Um, and so there are various ways to theorize that's that uh, that transition, and it could range from anything from well, um, Judaism is for Jews and Christianity is for Gentiles. Um, that uh, is not only sort of a, you know, a, a one way that, and I think a convincing way that academics have read the salvation history and kind of early intellectual history of Christianity, even today, it was also the way that, uh, it's also the way that a lot of the greatest sages of Jewish antiquity, um, read Christian history, even those who were sort of positively disposed towards the friendships that Jews and Christians could have. Uh, one example, and I actually wrote an article about this in the wall street journal, uh, about two years ago. Uh, was Rabbi uh, Jacob Emden. Rabbi Jacob Emden was one of the uh, most legendary uh, scholars of 18th century Europe. Um, he was a prodigious author and writer and even sometimes polemicist. 
And in a particularly interesting case whose details need not detain us here, he actually writes this long, like 70 page monograph theorizing the potential for a relationship between Judaism and Christianity. And Mm. even though he was living at a time of tremendous Christian persecution of Jews, um, he actually thought that there was potential for an actually positive relationship moving forward, not just positive for both parties, but positive for the wider world. Uh, And part of how he builds that case is making uh, the assertion that I just made, which is that Judaism is for Jews. Uh, Christianity as such is a path to salvation within the story of Israel for Gentiles. Um, it's a way that the, it's a way that sort of the, the God of Israel, uh, sort of, uh, um, extends, uh, extends his salvation as Jews themselves thought would happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, even as the rabbis thought would happen to people who aren't members of, uh, who aren't members of, of, of the Jewish people. So for example, in rabbinic literature, uh, you have the statement that in Hebrew, chasidei umot ha'ulam, uh, and at an earlier stage of rabbinic literature, you have the idea that uh, that I believe it's which means that the righteous, uh, righteous among the Gentiles, the righteous among the nations, will have a share in the world to come, same as same as Jews. The idea right. being that um, you don't, in order to be saved, as it were, in order to reach the era of the redemption, as it were, you actually don't need to be Jewish. Um, you need to be righteous. You need to have your own story. That's the the that's what what uh, that's what the rabbis argue. That's what Maimonides argues. Um, and on one reading, the reading that I would adopt, that's what Paul argues. Um, but another way of theorizing that break between uh, Judaism and Christianity, or the the emergence, another way to theorize that is to say, well. There was something wrong with the old version, mm-hmm. and so we and so a new version needed to emerge. Now the question is: Let's say you adopt that reading, which is which is a fairly standard reading, um, and and even though it, it hasn't always been, you know, it, it's not the only reading in Christian history. It's definitely an important one. So then the question becomes: Well, how do you regard uh, the old thing? Um, is the old thing not as good but still worthwhile? Or is the old thing actively bad uh, right. and needs to be rejected, maybe uh, maybe oppressed, maybe even killed? Um, and while obviously, as a Jewish person, um, I don't I don't cotton to either to any of those readings. Um, I certainly I certainly appreciate that they need to have their own internal logic. Uh, and I'll get to this point uh, later on when I, when I talk about a, a really important essay that we should talk about, which is called Confrontation um, by Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. We'll get to that in a moment. Hmm. Um, what happens around about the second century AD is all of this kind of comes to a head. Like in the first century of the common era, a lot of these assumptions about what is the relationship between the the potentially new thing that's emerging and the old thing, uh, those questions are either unspoken, maybe nobody even is, maybe it's not even occurring to anybody because nobody thinks a new thing is emerging just yet. But in about the second century... Well, and we should say the, the New Testament texts themselves are wrestling with this issue of, of how the new and the old uh, go together. If, if you view them in new and old terms, I guess extension and non-extension or in-group, out-group, and how do those two things work? I mean, the first church council in Acts 15 is specifically to settle this issue of how should Gentiles be integrated into Judaism in this sense. Right, right. And so you could read that as either Israel is the same as it's always been, and the question is, how do we bring others in? Um, or you could read it as, uh, Israel as such, there's a break. And now we need to figure out what this new thing is, both for Gentiles and for Jews, that Mm -hmm. there are multiple ways you could read that. But assuming you read it that second way, um, which is not necessarily the way that I would read it, but assuming you do read it that way. So what you need to ask yourself at that point is, well, okay, what do we do with the old, with the old thing in the second century? This really, really comes to a head, particularly because of the efforts of of what we know from ancient sources was a, uh, of a person whom we know from ancient sources was a very popular thinker by the name of Marcion, uh, mm. Marcion of Pontus. Um, and so he's sort of from like modern day, like Turkey, Asia Minor, that kind of area. And uh, Marcion is, is interesting because he's one of the first people to have what we would think of as a canon. He has like a list of books that, that you need to read. Uh, so he probably has 
something that approximates the gospel of Luke and the letters of Paul. Um, and what Marcion uh, argues very influentially is that, well, if you read the gospel of Luke and you read the letters of Paul, and then you read the books of the Hebrew Bible, you would come away thinking that the gods described in those respective works are like two different gods. There's like the loving God of the, of the gospels and the letters of Paul. And then there's like the angry, jealous God of the, of the Hebrew Bible. If and you so read what Marcy, very selectively from those texts, correct. Right. Yeah. It's like a bad reading of those <laughs> yeah. texts, a well, very and, bad reading and a of narrow, those you're only pick, you're picking and skipping. Right. So, yeah. Right. But it's very influential, yeah. very influential. And what Marcion argues is, well, if they, if it, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's too, it's, it's a duck. So if these gods, if the gods in these works sound different, look different, feel different, speak differently, it's because they're two different gods. Mm -hmm. Uh, the God of the Hebrew Bible is like this lower venal, uh, uh, creator, uh, sort of like creator God called the Demiurge. And the God of the new Testament is God, the father and is, and is this loving true God. And, uh, what this results in is, as you can imagine, um, a sense that, well, uh, if you're a people who only adheres to the teachings of the old God, then you're bad, right? And so Marcionism is, is sort of one kind of spur to anti-Semitism, to what we would think of as anti-Semitism. And at the same time, let's say you're responding to Marcy and Marcy ends up being declared a heretic by what we would now right. think of as Orthodox Christians. But there are multiple ways you could respond to that. You could either say, well, Marcion, uh, you're wrong. The God of the, of the Hebrew Bible and the God of the Gospels and Paul's letters is actually one God. But you, so you could either contest his reading on like literary grounds, which is what I would do, mm -hmm. um, or what some, or, you know, what like a kind of a contemporary reader might do, religious or not. Or what you could do, and this was also a very popular move, is you could say, well, of course they're the same God, but they do sound different. And if they sound different, and it's not God that's the rel that's the variable, because God is the constant, then the variable then the variable must be the people mm -hmm. to whom these works are addressed. And since the Hebrew Bible, the, and since the only difference between the Hebrew Bible and the Gospels and the Epistles of Paul is whom is to whom they are addressed, it must be that the people to whom the Hebrew Bible is addressed are bad and evil, and that's why they're provoking God to speak this way. And so, even the response to Marcionism prompts what we eventually know as anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. And so, from the perspective of really two thousand years of Jewish history, because I think, and and here is just an additional important point to make. You know, there's this there's this great exchange of letters, um, very sad from my perspective, but it's but it's important. There's an exchange of letters, I believe, in the fifth century, if I'm if I'm if I'm getting the timing, or the fourth century, I'll, uh, between uh, Augustine and Jerome, Saint Augustine and Saint Jerome, and they're having an argument. The argument is about how to treat Jews. Augustine had argued um, for essentially. Toleration, not what we would think of today as toleration, but like we don't have to kill them, let them be. They're so pathetic and degraded. You can just let them stand as a testimony to the triumph of of uh, to the triumph of Christianity. And there's no need to molest them any further than that. And Jerome's response is, "Are you crazy? Like you're gonna let them live? Like these people are Christ killers. Like go, mm -hmm. you have to kill them." And Augustine ends up saying, "Ah, you're overreacting." From a Jewish perspective, reading that exchange. It can, it's very jarring. Yeah. Um, I right, would say from a Christian perspective, it should also be very jarring. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, specifically right, right. from a Jewish perspective as well. Right. Yeah. So what ends up happening is over the course of many centuries, it's not the dominant you know, voice in Christianity. Sorry, it's not the only voice in Christianity, but in fairness, it is the dominant voice in Christianity, which is to say that if we need to figure out what our relationship is to the Jewish people, um, and to the extent that we don't want to just say, well, Judaism is good for Jews and Christianity is sort of a path to salvation for non-Jews. If you want to make the totalizing claim that Christianity is for everybody, including Jews, then Jews start to become a problem. And so what emerges as sort of the doctrine that expresses the proper attitude towards Jews is that word I used before, which is supersessionism. Supersessionism comes from the word that we would use, you know, contemporarily to supersede. 
something has superseded something else. The argument here is that, in fact, uh, the people of Israel uh, are not the, uh, the Jewish people are not really the people of Israel at all, because the people of Israel are people to whom God has made all sorts of promises and whom God loves and uh, with whom God has a covenant. And the Jews are not can't be those people because they're bad. And so the true Israel, Verus Israel, the true Israel, uh, are Christians who have superseded the covenant that God made with the Jewish people. And so what this is a, a, a sort of a modern term for describing this approach to how Judaism figures within the wider world of Christianity is called replacement theology, right. that the Jews have been replaced, their relationship with God has been severed, and uh, and the the bearers of all the legacies that that God had prom- of all the rather the the bearer of all the the recipient of all the promises that God had made to Israel uh, are no longer the Jewish people, but actually uh, and in fact never were really the Jewish people. They were always uh, uh, Christians. And now the question is, there are two questions that this kind of prompts. One is from a Jewish perspective, how do you evaluate a claim like this? Um, and number, and what should you do about it as a, as a Jewish thinker? Uh, but another question is if, and this is a question for a question for Christians is, well, if that's your theology, if that's what you believe, um, not saying that you have to believe that, but if you do believe that, so what do you do? Uh, and how does that play out in your life? And the very sad and tragic and horrible reality of like, you know, centuries upon centuries upon centuries of Jews living in Christian lands is that the, what Christians thought they should do about this was treat Jews horribly. Um, and sometimes are better than others. Uh, and, and it would be a mistake to tell the entire history of Judaism in Christian lands as a, what's called a lacrimose story, which is the Jewish his, historian's term for a story that only has tears in it. That's right. just like a sad story because there's so many triumphs and wonderful moments of Jewish history and we should tell those stories and celebrate them. And And there are moments of incredible uh, uh, sort of intellectual friendship and contact and, and, and flourishing amongst Jews and Christians, particularly during the Renaissance uh, and, and sort of, and, and that period. And, and in, and in particularly in, and particularly in America, Judaism and Christianity have sort of created this, this really wonderful, exciting relationship. But, um, if you're a Jewish person who reads a title that says Jesus is the only person who ever interpreted the Torah correctly, essentially. Mm-hmm. So what that dredges up for you is this notion of supersessionism that, the Torah, um, which is how we describe our own tradition, um, that we actually don't get it. We have no idea what we're talking about. The only person who actually interpreted it correctly is the person who replaced us. Right. Uh, and because that theology has been the source of so much, I truly like death, like just so much death. Um, I mean, every single year, uh, once a year when we, when Jews commemorate the destruction of the temple, um, we sort of read liturgical poetry commemorating various catastrophes over the course of Jewish history. And many of them, and it's very painful, many of them uh, were written by Jews living in Christian lands, mourning uh, pogroms and and anti-Semitic violence and just a thousand deaths and tortures, some of which are too gruesome to describe. I mean, pregnant mothers having their bellies slashed open by people who are calling them Christ killers. I mean, my family, I have family members in the past who suffered this sort of thing. Yeah. Not to dwell in the darkness, but yeah. um, if if that is the history, and, and it's a history, you know, unlike many Christians, where we don't review our history, we don't know Christian. Right. I mean, the fact that you, uh, a Jewish thinker, actually probably know historical Christian theology better than ninety nine percent of Christians out there, right? Uh, we don't review it, and so there's this sense where, like, oh, I didn't mean it. That I even had somebody text me today, like, why are you apologizing for, you know, doing this? Like, they just misunderstood that, like, that wasn't what it was meant. I'm like, no, I'm apologizing because I didn't think about how the words were heard. Like, I didn't pay attention to how the words could be heard. Um, and, you know, it's fair to say that large periods of Jewish history in Europe, they lived much more peacefully under Muslim rule than they did under Christian rule quite often. 
Right. Um, and not, not that that was, uh, not that that was, uh, the rosiest picture ever right. as well, but you're right. By and large, if, if, you know, I think just sort of like, a probably the most reasonable way of reading the sources is that yes, Jews probably fared slightly better on average under Mus- in Muslim lands and under than in Christian lands. But it's not a rosy story in, in general. And, and yeah. even under Christian, in, in Christ, Christian Europe, you have long periods where Jews are essentially living under what we would call Jim Crow laws today and, and uh, weren't allowed to do many occupations, weren't allowed to enter certain uh, areas. And so, so, uh, and also, you know, you were, you were, you were property of the crown or of the, or of the local bishop or the local governor in most cases. So, you know, it created all of these like perverse incentives where on the one hand, if you're, if you're a peasant and you hate the local Lord, uh, but you can't attack the local Lord, the best thing you could do is ravage his property and his property was often the Jews. Right. right. And if you're the Lord and you know, you don't want to deal with, uh, with rebellious peasants and you want to give them a sense that like their lives aren't as horrible as you in truth are making it. So the best thing you can do to show the best thing you can do to convince someone who's suffering that they're not really suffering is show them someone suffering more. Hmm. And so oftentimes Jews are sort of the sacrificial lamb as it were to appease you know, medieval peasants. Yeah. And so that's the point that I missed when I was even reading the draft of this. And I did not read it closely enough with this lens is that these aren't mere words, right? In the same sense, when I was 12 or 13 years old, I had an African-American stepfather um, and I flippantly called him boy. I said something like, boy, don't talk to me like that. Just joke, (laughs) like normal joking that we would normally do. I had no idea the history of that term. He grew up under Jim Crow laws in the South, drank from different water fountains and, um, he, as they say, throttled me and uh, <laughs> let me know that that was an inappropriate term to ever use again in his presence. Um, and in, in, in many ways, you can say, yeah, it didn't, in some ways, it didn't matter that I didn't know what it meant. I knew what it meant at that point. And it would be um, insensitive to say the least to then say it again, saying, well, I don't mean it in that way. Right. So I think that's what we're dealing with right, right now with this article is all of these terms are charged and loaded from a real history that real people experienced and some people still experience to this day. Um, and by the way, I just to return really quickly to something I alluded to earlier, the question of the question of if you're a Christian, what does replacement theology prompt you to do? How mm. does it prompt you to behave is separate analytically from the question of how should Jews respond to replacement theology and how should we regard people who believe in that in good faith? And I think there that's kind of, um, I, I want to talk about how I interpreted the article because mm. I think I interpreted it differently than people who I think were just purely offended by it. Right. Um, but, but just, just to give say, a sense of it, I, I, you know, I sure. did get a couple drew Johnson is, is a massive anti-Semite and, um, my favorite go F yourself. <laughs> Okay. First of all, there were really strong reactions. I'm going to jump in here just really quickly and make a point that I think if any, if nothing else is ever said on this podcast, it just needs to be said. Like in general, take away the context of this for a second. I, there is nothing that, that, that angers me more than people hopping on the internet and just like flaming people and dunking on people they know nothing about. Mm. And in particular, Uh, and even if there weren't any mitigating circumstances, it would still be bad behavior. Like the instinct to dunk is probably one of the worst things about social media. Um, it, it, maybe it made sense in the context of like, it's like all the worst things. I think Megan McArdle is a writer for the Washington post has pointed this out. Social media takes all of the worst parts of small town life and all of the worst parts of, of big city anonymous living and combines them together. That is a good observation. And this is a good, this is an exact point. Like in a small town where everybody knows each other, like, yeah, like you'll speak to each other in like pretty severe ways. Cause you, there's a context of love for it. Right. And in the big city, you're all anonymous and nobody knows each other. So at least you don't say bad things about each other on social media. It's all of like the horrible dunking of small town life and the anonymity and lack of love and context Mm. of, of big city living. And so this is one of those cases where it's just, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry that I have to be the one to say it, but it is, it is blindingly obvious to anyone who knows Drew Johnson, that the last thing you are is an anti-Semite and for someone to get on social media, you're most true, but like someone (laughs) for someone to get on social media and say that about you is unconscionable and horrible and they should be ashamed of themselves and and if nothing else is said on this podcast, I, I'll I'm, I'm proud to say that you're a friend, and you're you're a good man, you're a good scholar, and and at at worst 
this was just a, this was just like we all this is a mistake that anybody makes right at worst um and and at best it wasn't even that so uh, let that be said the the second point that i wanted to make is there's a wonderful uh, talk. It became an essay uh, that one of the greatest American Jewish theologians ever, certainly the 20th century, um, Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, uh, once delivered. Rabbi, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik was, uh, you know, the theologian uh, and and uh, massive, monumental rabbinic thinker at Yeshiva University in sort of the the mid to late. Uh, 20th century. He was my grandfather's teacher. Hmm. Um, and Rabbi Soloveitchik has this wonderful essay that he delivered in the, a talk that became an essay that he delivered originally in 1964 called Confrontation. And he was responding to the de then developing Vatican II talks and the question of, you know, how should, should, you know, the Catholic Church kind of uh, adjust or amend its theology in order to uh, accommodate Jewish concerns about Christian anti-Semitism, and by the same token, should Jews kind of, you know, in in exchange for that, should they, should you know, Jews adjust some of their own, uh, you know, notions, historical notions about Christians, in ex sort of uh, as sort of share and share alike, hmm. um, and underlying all of this was sort of this new age fuzzy notion of of like kumbaya style interfaith dialogue that mm -hmm. that factions both within the catholic church and within parts of the jewish community were really pushing for and the question was are these good advisable bad something indifferent and rabbi soloveitchik um did two things in this essay which are critical for this conversation the first thing he did was uh he argued that for Jews, and he was an Orthodox Jewish uh, rabbi. He was the you know preeminent Orthodox Jewish rabbi or, at the time, or one of them. Um, he argued that interfaith dialogue was prohibited as a matter of faith. Um, what he meant by that, and he makes this very clear, is what he objected to were different faith traditions haggling over their uh, their doctrinal commitments, like we were, like we were two peddlers at a flea market. Mm. Um, and that in fact, religious traditions have their own internal logic, consistency and beauty. And those things should both be respected and admired. And if therefore, um, uh, if therefore it is essential to Catholicism to believe that, uh, that the church has replaced uh, has replaced the synagogue, then that is as of little, that should be, uh, uh, that is as, as, sorry, let me rephrase. That is as little business for the Jews as it would be a Catholic's business. If, if, uh, if Jews consider, uh, Jesus Christ to be, uh, to be a, a false Messiah, for example, right. right. It's as little of anybody's business for one as it is for the other. Now, um, and, and I think, by the way, there's something important there, which is actually, if you take the kind of person who, who objects most stridently to Christians believing things about Jews that are inconvenient for, for Jewish sociology are the kind of people who actually, not always, but can tend to be the kind of people who don't take, uh, Jewish faith very seriously. Because if you did take it very seriously, Rabbi Soloveitchik argued, you would understand that faith has its own internal logic, its own sense of obligation that it imposes upon you, and and there's no amount of sociological reasoning in the world that should ever justify you denying a core doctrine just for convenience. Now, at the very same time, Rabbi Soloveitchik also argued um, that at the level of, of values at the level of society, at the level of, of improving civilization, he did think that there was not mm -hmm. just room for different faith traditions, uh, working with each other, cooperating with each other. He actually thought it was a good thing. In fact, he's one of the earliest, uh, Orthodox Jewish writers to refer to Judeo-Christian tradition, Judeo-Christian mm. civilization. Um, and so I think both of those things are also important in, which is to, when assessing the essay we're talking about now, which is to say, even if the essay intended to promote supersessionism, the idea that uh, Judaism as such 
is bad and wrong and has been replaced by a new religion called Christianity. And in fact, Christianity uh, has gotten everything right about Israel's God, where Israel got everything wrong. Um, even if that is the argument, like if that's if that's what you feel compelled and obligated to believe, that has its own internal logic and needs to be, and from a from a, a Jewish perspective, should be respected. Um, in the past, maybe those things, not maybe in the past, that kind of thinking did lead to to terrible violence. But if there's a way for it not to do that in the contemporary age, that's fantastic, and we should and we should be happy about that. But what we shouldn't do is sort of horse trade our faith. And that was the argument of, of confrontation. So, th- yeah, you know, that's really so helpful. That's, yeah, that's the perspective on this article. If this article were advocating for supersessionism. Yeah. I think also, and I, and it, you know, in all fairness, um, you know, I grew up in America. I've been here 47 years, um, for most of my 47 years, just a few years in other countries. Um, and I think in general, like if you'd asked me if things like would people ever storm the Capitol building and try to like take it over, I don't think I could imagine a world in which that would happen. Maybe in the seventies, you know, as a child, it seems right, like, everything like the was war going, of 1810. Yeah. Know? Like, yeah. Like in the seventies, it seems like everything was haywire. I was telling some of my students, you know, some like daily occurrences of things that happened in the seventies and they were beside themselves. But, um, now I think this kind of, I think the fact that we have all seen language and ideas transmogrify into actually kind of horrifying action in front of us, like almost mobbish action, that there's probably a heightened sensitivity to the fact that Christians could naively um, kind of take up supersessionist, like hold really theologically, um, you know, robust supersessionist views, replacement views, and that that actually could, you know, now I think we can all imagine a path by which you get a bunch of people, you know, where people, people are saying, well, they didn't mean to go take that mob over and, and burn down that synagogue. You know, they just got frothy in the moment and they were saying things and, didn't realize the replacement theology would take them there. So I think to, you know, to be fair to the, to the reaction, I can, I can see that this is probably a little bit more of a heightened moment that anti-Semitism in Europe is kind of at an all time high right now. Um, and, uh, that that's like the best reading of the kind of reaction to it. And I did get, you know, some emails and private reactions where that was the concern. And I, and I think those are, I think those are very fair. And, and again, it was mea culpa that I didn't, catch things that now look blaringly obvious to me and, you know, the light of the other side of that critique. Um, I do think that, uh, so I had some scholars who were also young, younger scholars who were emailing me saying like, so can, are, are we just not allowed like at SBL society for biblical literature you know, amongst the professionals, some of whom were critiquing this article, are we, are we just not allowed to say that we think Jesus actually is the fulfillment of the Torah in some way? And um, can we not say that out loud? Are we going to be accused of this? I mean, they were just terrified, right? They didn't know so, where to so look. That's, so this actually is where I want to mount a, a I want to mount sort of a defense of the article. Because I actually read the article a little bit differently than some of the people that you're describing. Um, and I want to preface it by saying that there is a part of me that, again, I, I'm not. I don't know any of the the individuals who may have reached out to you, um, but just as a general matter, um, I should I say have, I asked I asked them to be on here with us, and uh, sure. none of them could make it this month. Sure. Or next month. So <laughs> there were Fair. several requests to like bring the people who were really yeah. concerned on here, and, and Fair none, enough. None of them could do it. I, I will say, um, I find and your average your average kind of uh you know person on the street orthodox jewish person will tell you the same thing um the ones who are in academia probably won't but because it's very uncomfortable to do this but i'm very comfortable saying i find biblical studies you know academic jewish studies that sort of it's a very inhospitable place for orthodox jews as well very inhospitable mm-hmm. everyone's very polite and everyone says nice things but they're kind of, you're it's uncomfortable to say the things that that you just straight up believe so like 
I believe that the that the correct interpreters uh, of Jewish history, Jewish literature, and Jewish text are the rabbis um, and rabbinic literature. And uh, I, I sort of take that as a given. Um, I think they're the heroes of Jewish history. And I object to ways of telling the story that obscure any of those things. Um, that is a that is that is not something that that is welcome. <laughs> mm. Certainly in English speaking academic circles. Yeah. Um, and and even in Israeli academic circles, I think like the caricatures like, oh, it's just like a yeshiva in, you know, in his, but it's really not. Like anyone who's actually studied in yeshiva knows that it's not. Um, so I actually have a lot of empathy uh, for people who feel like, wait, so am I not supposed to to bring my most cherished beliefs into my scholarship? Uh, especially when you see uh, uh, people who are um, people in academia who are certainly bringing their most cherished beliefs into academia, even if they're not religious, but they're you know political or ideological or what have you. It feels unfair and it feels like a double standard. And I agree with that. I think it's terrible. Hmm. That said, uh, so so I kind of came at this from the perspective of like almost like game recognized game, sort of like I looked at someone who was trying to make a case as um, as a serious believer um, for something that was meaningful to him. I thought it was I thought it was it was phrased poorly, and I said that publicly, uh, but I did understand what was going on, and I want to kind of make a case for why I actually think this was not a supersessionist article. Mm. Um, it was doing something that I disagree with, but it was a disagreement that I welcomed rather than 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 was upset about. Um, to review, the premise of supersessionism is that Christianity is a new religion that has come along and replaced Judaism, which is to say anything that's happening in Judaism is fundamentally irrelevant for Christianity in, unless and until Christianity as such as a religion decides to uh, kind of back reference it uh, and thereby endow it with significance. Um, this article is not making that claim whatsoever. I know it sounds like it when you say Jesus was the one who like interpreted the Torah the best. It sounds like you're saying that Christianity replaced Judaism. I actually don't think that's what it's saying at all. Hmm. Um, what it's what it's arguing uh, is something quite a bit different, which is that if you read the article, uh, and this is part of a trend in contemporary biblical scholarship, which I think is very healthy, which is reading. Uh, early Christian literature and life, including the Gospels and letters of Paul and all those things, against their Hebraic background. It's very, very important because I actually think that those texts are basically incomprehensible without understanding the Hebraic context from which they emerged. And part of that understanding that Hebraic context is knowing that the first century was a time when all of Jewish society uh, all of all shapes and sizes, classes and creeds, uh, everybody was jostling for influence and attempting to interpret, uh, attempting, attempting to interpret both history, theology and society in such a way that could make sense of the cataclysmic events of that century. Just mm. to kind of recap what's happening right. for the first time, um, you know, if you look at the the era of the Bible, so the books of the Bible, with the exception of the book of Daniel, the Israelites are always sort of like a regional power. Um, they, you know, they emerge from Egypt, you know, as as slaves, obviously, but they eventually sort of build, a, you know, a, a, a power base in their ancestral homeland in the land of Israel. And they are kind of one of the many different powers competing for influence in the region from the Moabites to the Philistines, to the, to the people of Tyre and Sidon, to the Ammonites, to the Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Hittites go on and on and on. It's only when, and even when, by the way, the, the kingdom of Judea is destroyed, sort of it's, it's, it's destroyed by kind of like the same Mesopotamian by, by a very familiar feeling power, the right. Babylonians. Right. It's only when uh, Alexander comes to the ancient Near East with the forces of sort of Greco-Roman antiquity, not obviously not Roman, but with sort of the, 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 the legacy of Rome, of rather of Greece on his back, 
in the late fourth century before the common era, right. Of BC that all of a sudden Israel sees itself as just a tiny player on a much larger international stage. Hmm. And you could see this in the book of Daniel. You really see this in the book. Oh of yeah. Daniel. Yeah. This, this is the first time that Israel has to wrestle with geopolitics. This only becomes heightened once Rome arrives on the scene in the first century BC. And what you start to see is this like increasing cognitive dissonance within Jewish politics of, well, listen, are we, are we a chosen people? If so, how come it doesn't look that way at a political level or a sociological level? You know, we believe in the, the, the sort of like the the clash of Rome and Jerusalem is is real to many extents. Like, you know, how do we how do we reconcile our way of life with the way of life that's that feels like it's being imposed upon us? Because the world of the worlds of Greece and Rome are these very kind of like universalistic creeds, and it's running up against Jewishness that doesn't see the world in universalistic terms. It sees the world in terms of particular stories, and each nation has its own history and its own right. narrative, its own experiences. And this is a time of terrible cataclysm. And for a variety of reasons, this erupts into a revolt that rocks the Roman Empire to its very core. Tom Holland, who's an excellent historian, right. actually pointed this out on Twitter the other day, and it's true. The the revolt, the Jewish revolt against Rome in the years, you know, 67 through 70 CE uh, of AD is so, um, is so catastrophic for Rome that what ends up, what they end up doing in Judea is moving in the largest per capita, the largest military presence anywhere in the Roman empire. It's like two and a half legions just in a place that's smaller than New Jersey. It's crazy. And even after that rebellion is put down in the year about about 110 uh, AD, there start to be revolts across the diaspora. People, their pogrom, the first pogroms in history are taking place in Cyprus and Alexandria, in Egypt, and so on and so forth under Trajan. So Jews are dying. And then there's another revolt against Rome, a Jewish revolt against Rome uh, under the rule of Emperor Hadrian in 135 AD. And so this is a period of like apocalyptic fervor. Everybody's trying to figure out what's going on. There's some groups that are really leaning into the apocalypticism. Other groups are leaning away from the apocalypticism deliberately, like the rabbis, for example, or many of the rabbis. Um, but everyone's really trying to figure out what does God want us to do at this point? And when you ask, what does God want us to do? There are two sources for figuring that out. One is tradition, right? The tradition of the elders. And the other is, uh, are the texts that were written down many you know, that, you know, that were written down that we can sort of interpret. And there are advantages and disadvantages to both, right? If you're just trying to interpret a text, so who's to say that you're interpreting it correctly? Who the heck do you think you are? <clears throat> and with tradition, right? So, you know, tradition, you could be a bad student. Who knows if you're a good, you have to, you have to rely on people being good students in order for tradition to work. And so if you look, leave Christianity at it for a moment, you just look at internal Jewish conversations in the first century, both first century BC, first century AD, and, you know, give or take a century or two on either end, what you see are Jews of every stripe arguing that I am the only one who gets what's going on, hmm. who knows what God wants. And I am the only one with the answers. Everybody's arguing that. Um, now, <laughs> rabbinic tradition is unusual because within rabbinic tradition, there's this move uh, to argue that actually differences can coexist. You know, the great Jewish, you know, the great rabbinic teachers, Hillel and Shammai, uh, who are sort of like rough contemporaries of Jesus, um, you know, uh, essentially learn to coexist with their differences. But at the same time that they're coexisting, like they're definitely people that even for them are totally beyond the pale. Fellow Jews, you have... Jews in the Dead Sea Scroll community who are arguing that they're the only real Jews left. Um, all of this is taking place not within a replacement theology context, but within the context of trying to figure out like what does the God of Israel want the Jewish people to be? If you read Jesus within his Hebraic and Jewish context, as I believe you should, as, as I think Christians believe you should, and as Jewish sages like Rabbi Jacob Emden or Profiat Duran or other great sages of Jewish antiquity also thought that you should, then it's totally sensible to say that 
Jesus was another person who also thought that he was interpreting the Torah properly. And, and from a Jewish perspective, it would be exactly what you would expect from, uh, from somebody like that. And so what I saw this article as doing was attempting to make that case mm-hmm. as saying Jesus was, uh, Jesus was, uh, uh, was a Jewish thinker. And again, for whatever your theological views are on that, like just from a, from a, at a textual level, right. right? And at a historical level, Jesus was a Jewish thinker in the first century, uh, in the first century who, uh, was trying to figure out what the God of Israel wanted for his people and for, and for the wider society and made an argument about what that thing was. And he was convinced that he was right and everybody else was wrong. And that is not, that's not supersessionism. That's not saying Christianity replaced Judaism and the Jews are therefore all rotten. It's just an, it's an internal Jewish conversation that's that basically really tries to take seriously the idea that Jesus was Jewish. Um, and if I think it was phrased in a way that sort of smacked of supersessionism and, and, and Jews, I think are very, and as I am, are very understandably sensitive when someone says this person whom everybody considers Christian is the only one who gets Judaism. Cause that does sound like supersessionism, but right. fundamentally the idea that the idea of reading Jesus as a Jewish thinker, taking Jewish debates and conversations very seriously, far from ending those conversations and starting something new, someone who really was taking those conversations seriously and meshed in them and trying to drive them forward. That's awesome. That's exactly how I want Jesus to be interpreted. And the only place where I differ although it's a difference that I welcome is that I believe that there were other Jews who got it right, namely the rabbis. And so, but, but in making that argument, that's the kind of thing that Jews always do. Like, you know, you always want to say like, yeah, my guy got it right. Um, And so far from supersessionism, I saw it as a way of actually reading Jesus within his, within his Jewish context. And, you know, if it was, if it was phrased poorly, something you could easily correct. And I'm glad that sounds like it was. And, uh, so that's kind of my reading. Hello, hello. My name is Ari Lam and I'm the host of Good Faith Effort, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate all the most important conversations in society. Conversations feel like they've become so predictable nowadays. You open up Twitter, turn on the news, or even just strike up a conversation with your friends, and you probably feel like you more or less know exactly what people are going to say before they even say it. So Good Faith Effort is all about having those conversations that you literally will not hear anywhere else. Want to hear the former head of publicity at Def Jam Records and a legend in the world of hip-hop talk about how Abraham in the book of Genesis helps him see Run DMC in a new light? Want to hear a leading VC in Silicon Valley talk about how the prophet Isaiah informs her work? Want to hear a reporter for the New York Times talk about why she's converting to Judaism or a best-selling author and professor of the humanities talk about why she decided to convert to Catholicism? Want to hear an Oscar-winning producer and leading podcaster reflect on how religion can save the American soul? Well, all I can say is subscribe to Good Faith Effort on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get podcasts and give us a listen. And listen in to the inspiring, fun, crazy conversations that you wouldn't hear anywhere else. Let's just talk about some. We say phrase poorly. Let's just talk about some of the phrases or terms that um, can can trigger. I I'm, I didn't want to use the word trigger, but it, it does trigger us, right? <laughs> if you have a certain sensitivity, it triggers. As I saw red flag emojis coming up all over in Twitter. Um, so one of them was legalism. This legalist framework uh, brought in by Hellenism. Um, and I think, I think it's fair to say that he's using the term legalism in a technical sense. He wrote this monograph, this big nerdy book on codes and laws in the ancient world. And so he has something very clear in mind, but legalism can be heard. Why is legalism such a right, dangerous a good word point. in so, this context? Right. It's a good point. So one of the kind of classic stereotypes about the differences between Jews and Christians that Christians promote in the, in the ancient world and in the medieval period and often use as a you know use as a, as a pretext or a subtext for perpetrating real anti-Semitic violence against Jews. Not like violence in the contemporary like twenty first century right. sense, where like words are harmful, but yeah. like actual physical violence right. Right. Right? Um, is the idea of 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 carnal Israel, right? The idea that that 
the Jews are are all obsessed with the physical physicality and their bodies and law and like technical details. And Christians are all about love and faith and belief. Right. Um, and the spirit, not the body. And the, yeah. Right. And the spirit. Which right. Are both so wrong on so many different accounts. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But uh, now there there is. There, like all, like all falsehoods, there's a kernel of truth, like all good falsehoods, there's right, a kernel right. of truth in there, which is that, um, to the extent, you know, I think there's like a sense of all you need is, you know, there's kind of like a caricature of like Pauline theology, which is that all you need is faith. You don't mm. need to actually do anything. You just need to believe. And that's enough. Um, and I think like there's a, there's sort of like an average Joe on the street uh, who finds that like very intuitive, like, mm-hmm. of course, the end of the day, like, listen, details are details at the end of the day, as long as you love me and I love you, like right. we could work out the details later. There's something like intuitive about that from a Jewish standpoint. Not only is it, not only would we consider that wrong, it's almost like ludicrous to think that it's, it would sort of be like, it would sort of be like saying, you know, if, if, uh, you know, if your wife tells you, like, if my wife tells me, listen, go out, take out the garbage, uh, pick up food for, you know, pick up food for Shabbos, do homework with the kids. Uh, you know, if you can, if you have time, you know, bring me some, you know, bring me some flowers. I had a tough day at work. Um, and can you just be home to have dinner? Just make sure that you're, that you're around to have dinner with everybody. So imagine I come home at the end of the day and I've literally done not a single one of those things. And I say, but I love you. Right. right. Like that, that how, like, I can't imagine anything more like disrespectful and disingenuous than that. Yeah. And for, for, from the Jewish perspective, that's what a, co- that's what covenant theology is about. That's what a covenant is. A covenant is about, um, is about a holistic way not just of of saying love or or expressing love, but demonstrating love. And what God, in much the same way that we believe that that true belief, biblical believers believe that God cares about every single blade of grass on this earth. Um, you know, like when people say like, oh, God doesn't care who wins the Yankees or the Mets. Like, no, I believe that actually God cares who wins sports games. You like, might care God a little about, too much, but right, yeah. right. Like God cares about everything and God is involved in our lives in a very serious way. And I think if you're a biblical believer, you believe that God cares about what happens on this earth. So if you believe that a natural corollary for, for of that, from my perspective would be, well, God does care uh, very deeply about all the ways that we relate to him. And so it would be, it would be absurd to think that what you do doesn't matter as long as you say the right things or believe the right things in your heart. It would, you know, like... No, like my wife actually does care if I yeah. take out the garbage because that's love is actually a holistic. It's total. Now that said, I think that kind of thinking is compatible with both Judaism and Christianity. Mm-hmm. Like, so it, to an extent, this is caricaturing, like you could caricature Judaism as just legalistic. You could also caricature Christianity as like, just like fluffy, flighty, whatever. And both of those would, I think, be unfair to an extent, but, um, there is because of the history in which that kind of carnal Israel trope has been deployed very directly for violent ends. Not as in like somebody, you know, somebody would say that totally innocuously and somebody else would commit violence. And because they happened at roughly the same time, right. one led to the other, right. like the kind of logic of how speech is violence in the 21st century. Like, no, I mean the kind of people who were saying like, let's kill Jews were like literally let's kill Jews. were like, let's kill them because they're so legalistic and blind and whatever. Um, so, um, because of that, um, Jews are, are, I don't want to speak for all Jews, but, but I think it's fair to say that, that Jewish people, Jewish communities and, and Jewish thinkers tend to be understandably very sensitive when, when you use words like legalistic to describe Jewish thinking, especially when you're contrasting it so directly to Christianity. Right. Um, and, and Christians often teach, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not unusual for a sermon to include like the, the quip, well, we don't want to be legalistic, right? Uh, right, so right. Exactly. It's not only that Jews are legalistic, but we don't want to be that. That's the antithesis of our faith, which I'd say it just, uh, misunderstands both the old and the new Testament. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's exactly right. And so that said, 
um, you know, there, you could offer the same analysis, uh, about as the article did about other groups of Jews from that period. And it wouldn't sound anti-Semitic. So like, for example, the Pharisees are a very good example, right? The Pharisees are sort of criticized by every single, uh, you know, by every single group in the ancient Jewish community because they were pretty popular, uh, or at least if Josephus is to be believed, they were relatively popular. And so, of course, they drew lots of criticism. There's a great article. It's it's written in Hebrew. I don't know if there's an English translation, but I but I refer to it in my dissertation. Um, there's a great article by an Israeli scholar, an excellent Israeli scholar named Yair Furstenberg, um, who has an article where he actually draws together uh, all of the different critiques of Pharisees in widely disparate sources hmm. and tries to see, well, is there any kind of common thread running through them? And... Um, I don't remember if this was his conclusion or if this was the conclusion that I drew on the basis of this research, but whatever it was, one of the things that you can find is the Pharisees are often accused of being too lenient. Hmm. Uh, that's a very common, that's a very common criticism of the Pharisees. If you read the sources carefully, so they're too lenient and they're lenient because they're not, uh, you know, they're not uh, reading texts in a very sort of literal specific right, way black and white fundamentalist way yeah exactly um and so if you're a pharisee uh one way you would respond to that is say listen like you guys are so and this seems to have been the pharisees kind of like approach even though we actually ironically we don't have right. any sources from pharisees right. at all we have the rabbis who in many ways are sort of like the, the intellectual descendants of the Pharisees, even though the rabbis themselves are, are critical and early sources of Pharisees. Hmm. Um, so that relationship is complex. They seem to emerge from the Pharisees in some way, but it's not exactly clear how, uh, even though they agree with the Pharisees about every conclusion when it comes to the, the details of the Jewish covenant with God, they agree with the Pharisees about everything, hmm. uh, but temperamentally they seem to have been different. Um, so you have the rabbis and really the, the, we have Josephus who was not a Pharisee, right? Um, even though he kind of like plays one, um, or he acts as one when it's convenient for him, as right. he says, um, the only text that we have from an actual real life Pharisee that exists right. is Paul's letters. <laughs> I, was gonna say, I see where you're going with this. It's yeah, Paul's they, letters. Yeah. So we don't know what the Pharisees would have said to their opponents. Um, but what you can imagine them saying is, listen, like you guys are like obsessed with like reading texts. So in such like a one-to-one -one literal black and white way. Um, you actually have to bring, you have to actually bring something else into it, whether it's tradition values, a sense mm -hmm. of a sense of nuance. That's actually the way that the Pharisees I imagine would have responded to some of the critiques they get in Matthew 23. Mm -hmm. um, and so you know, you could just as easily have written an article if you were sort of a, a Pharisee, you know, a follower of the Pharisees and say the Pharisees were the only ones who interpreted the Torah correctly. And in particular, and in particular, because, you know, they weren't obsessed with, you know, legalisms and, and, uh, and they were willing to be lenient and the rest of the Jewish people, uh, whether it's, whether it's, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Sadducees, Jesus, the Essenes or, or, or Josephus or anybody else. They all got it wrong. Um, you could imagine an article like that that accuses everybody else of legalism uh, and isn't uh, offensive. So that's kind of what I would say. Mm. But it is, I think, it is fair to say uh, that that there's a lot of sensitivity around specifically the contrast between legalistic carnal Jews and you know Christians who get that love is important. That it has a very ugly history. And even though I don't think it's like technically out of bounds, it's, it's something important to be aware of. And, um, just for the record, how do you know all of this? What's, what's your training? <laughs> you, you wrote a PhD in something, uh, around sure, this area, sure. right? Sure. Yeah. So I, I did my, I did my doctorate at Princeton, uh, uh, on, uh, the subject was, uh, uh, He's straining teachers. to remember right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let the, let the hero understand. Yeah, I think it was teachers, prophets, and interpreters, Jewish intellectual history from uh, from 200 BCE to 200 CE. Okay. Basically, what I did was I looked at the I looked at the the intellectual history, um, uh, beginning sort of with early Judaism and ending and ending with sort of early Judaism and early Christianity, and I specifically looked at 
the the record of not just what people did and how they behaved, but how they know things, how they know what to what to do and how to mm. behave. So do you you know, do we know how to behave because my teacher told me so? Is it because I read it in a book? Is it because God told me so through prophecy? Is it something else? Um, is it is it through reading something in a book? But the only way I know how to read that book is because God's helping me read that book. Mm. Um, and my argument was that those disputes uh, were actually uh, by far the primary way that that uh, uh, that people argued with each other during those centuries. And in fact, those differences were much more salient than what we would now think of as the differences between Judaism and Christianity. But wow. Anyway, that's my background. <laughs> Fascinating. All right. Uh, Rabbi Dr. Uh, Lamb, thank you so much for your wisdom and helping us understand this dicey waters of uh, supersessionism. My total pleasure. And, and Drew, thanks for having me. You're really the best. All right. Peace out. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.